Let's turn together to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we'll be studying this morning, verses 20 to 36. And if you want to follow along in the Bible that's provided in the seat back in front of you, you'll find it on page 899. That's 899. And I would add, if you don't have a copy of God's Word and you would like to keep that Bible, please do. We'd love for you to be able to read God's Word and find out what we're celebrating in saying that Jesus is our everything. Let me begin by reading John 12, verse 19, and then I'll read verse 20, and I'm going to stop there, and we'll read the rest as we go through the sermon. So help catch you up where we were. So Jesus has done the triumphal entry, the multitudes are clamoring for him to be king. And the commentary in verse 19 is, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. We'll stop there. The Pharisees are lamenting the fact that the whole world is going after him. And now in the very next movement, we see that even Greeks, even foreigners, are beginning to follow Jesus. We'll comment more on this in a moment. But I do want to go ahead and note the obvious. We, friends, are moving headlong into holiday season already. I'm happy for many of you to be able to spend some time with family in days ahead, to work over again some of those family traditions that you've done for years. And I realize at the same time there are unique sorrows associated with this particular season. And yet one of the things that just sticks out like a sore thumb is that of nostalgia. I mean, Hallmark is going to get more business both on TV and in store than they will get all year long. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm not going to make fun of Hallmark movies today. I know that that offends half the ladies in the room. But I will say it is a nostalgic time. We enter into fully certain traditions that have just been regulars for our lives for as long as we've known them. For me in particular, I'm thinking of when I was growing up, we would do a Thanksgiving praise service, kind of like we did the other night, but we would always do it like the Wednesday before, or no, it was the Tuesday before Thanksgiving. And it would be a joint one. There would be all these other churches, they would get together, and we would sing the same songs every year. I mean, you have to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness uh, at Thanksgiving. And then it was just, you know, hymn book greatest hits. And one of those in particular that has struck me of late, especially as we've been working our way through the Gospel of John, is none other than the old rugged cross. We sing that all the time. How many of you know that song? You've heard it. That's most of you. Thank you, Alan Jackson. No, it's <laughs> Alan Jackson did sing that song, uh, and he made it pretty popular for many. But it is an interesting song because like, it was coming to mind this week, and I haven't thought about it in years, truly. But there's that peculiar line, and I think we just sing right by it. Nostalgia has a way of doing that. You just do stuff because you've always done it, and you're not engaging with it. It's in the second verse where he says, oh, on that old rugged cross, oh, oh, that old rugged cross so despised by the world has a wondrous attraction for me wondrously attracted to an old rugged cross. Think about what you're singing there for a minute. It's the danger of sentiment. This, the singing that, the singing an ode to a, a wooden cross on which someone suffered and bled and died, does that strike you at all as strange or is it just sentimental? Like you're just so used to singing that, that the shock of it really isn't sticking with you. Friends, we have a hard time 
recalling how strange this is, that the cross would be at the center of our faith, because uh, we figured out a way to keep it sweet and syrupy and stylistic, (laughs) and yet it was intended to be shocking and offensive. It's a a new movement in Christianity. In fact, it's been made popular in many charismatic circles, but it's bled into the whole pot. It's called Christian triumphalism. Maybe you've never heard that term before, but triumphalistic theology, here's the technical definition, is theology prevalent in many denominations that focuses on the Christian life being one of glory while neglecting that it is also to be one of suffering. And while it's true that we're promised glory in this life, though not the kind we may crave, we are most certainly promised suffering as well. How many people are like honestly thinking about how weird it is to be singing about the crucifixion or the bloody execution of the one who is supposed to be the leader of the movement? It's a little strange, folks. But we figured out a way to make the cross about our victory and about our successes and about our peace and about our prosperity and not about the very offensive thing that it was intended to be from the beginning. Just think about what's changed over the last few years. I need you to be a church connoisseur for a second. And even if you're not a member of a church, you're not a follower of Jesus, you know churches, you get the drift. Think about the change. I'm not that old, but I remember hearing people like back in the day praying things like, Lord, use me. And yet today, the average Christian will pray, Lord, enrich me. Another a common prayer used to be, Lord, consume me according to your will, or do with me whatever you want. And now it's, Lord, bless me according to your will. You see the shift? What I want you to understand is that the Christian faith is not actually about your earthly blessing, despite the millions of voices that are clamoring that this is so. At the center of our faith is indeed a cross. I, I, they're too pretty these days, the crosses. We hang them up in our houses. The one back there, man, it looked nice. It was all white and clean and modern, had a good contrasting background. And yet... The closest thing that I could think of that would actually communicate the shock of what a cross represented is a noose. Could you imagine if somebody wore a noose around their neck? If somebody hung it on their wall? If somebody put it as a bumper sticker on the back of their car? It would communicate something rather odd. The cross, friends, this instrument of execution is the compass, the litmus test, the the quality control mechanism for all our thinking about God and ourselves. Like, we're supposed to, like when we think of God and what He's like, we're actually supposed to think of His Son dying in pain and agony on a tree on our behalf. Not just think resurrection or rain, but think of redemption and wrath suffered through his bloody death. Like, that is what should be coming to mind. Uh, The the old uh, theologian Martin Luther used to call it uh, the distinction between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross. Uh, The theology of, of glory is one where someone, like, seeks to, like, be enamored with God and His goodness and His greatness, and they want to be that too. A theology of the cross says, Oh, there's no way that I could actually come to him apart from what he's provided through his wrath, being endured in his son and his resurrection. Friends, the cross turns this prosperity-type theology, this Christian triumphalism on its head, and it reminds us that, hey, friends, before there ever is a great celebration, there is actually a personal crucifixion. What's going on here, as I bring this around, is that as we've been reading through John, Jesus is getting increasingly popular. If I were to use the word glory for a second, his glory meter is through the roof. 
Imagine it like one of those fundraisers, you know, where they're coloring in the lines. Like Jesus does this miracle in Cana, he turns the water into wine, and they, they, they fill in a little bit of the red. And then he heals the, the nobleman's uh, son, and then you're, you're filling it in a little more. And it's just, it's like, it's getting higher and higher and higher. And with the resurrection of Lazarus, like it is totally like you're scribbling outside the lines at this point because you're thinking, glory, this is amazing, this guy is phenomenal. And then we follow, though, what we saw last week, and it's like, he is amazing, and he is wonderful, and yet it seems like it's turning not to his triumph, but to his death. Remember, we saw it in three different scenes, like, everybody's cheering, yay, Jesus brought Lazarus back from the dead, and in the meantime, the religious leaders were saying, now we really have to kill him. And then he shows up to a party, and everybody's celebrating the fact that he brought Lazarus back from the dead. And the lady anoints his feet with oil, and Jesus says, oh, by the way, this is not for me as a king. This is for me as a sacrifice. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to die. And then the third scene that we saw last week is that Jesus is riding into Jerusalem, being proclaimed the king of Israel. Thousands of people are chanting that he's the ruler, and yet... John adds this note, after Jesus was glorified, they realized what was really going on here. He wasn't just going to be a king who would reign, he would be a king who would suffer the retribution of Almighty God and actually die first. It's weird, it's dark, it's not taking, it's not going the trajectory that you would expect it to go. And so the question would be, um, is Jesus all in on this? Is this just happening to him? Is this just like bad karma? Or is this actually part of a coordinated plan? And in this particular section, as Jesus' triumph has reached its greatest earthly point up to this time, Jesus will now testify to the fact that yes, indeed, this is part of the plan the crucifixion, my death, is at the center of everything that should be taking place. For Jesus, the turning point is actually when these Greeks see him. <laughs> Maybe it was because of certain passages in Isaiah that talked about in the day of the Lord, all the nations would be coming to Israel's king. Who knows? But Jesus now is going to switch up his language. He has been saying throughout the entire book, it's not my time to shine yet. It's not my time to shine. He'll say stuff like, my hour has not yet come. I'm not yet to be glorified. And now he's going to say over and over again in this passage, it's time. It's time. My hour is here. It's time to be glorified. And in it, he is communicating for us specifically that he will show himself most brilliantly and beautifully and gloriously through his death, not just his dominion. That's what this passage is about. It, the two ways that Jesus shines brilliantly, the way that he puts himself on display in a beautiful way in his death, not just his dominion. So, how does Jesus shine in his death? How does he shine with the symbol of the noose, if you will? Like, what's so great about that? What's so, what's so wondrous about that? What's so attractive about that? Why must Jesus display his glory in death? Well, there's two specific ways that he will shine. There's two benefits here. The first one we see in verses 20 to 26, that it produces life. His death produces life. Like the actual death itself brought life to some. Notice this. The, the Greeks are coming up. Jesus is popular. Everybody's like on board. They're trying to celebrate him. And uh, these, these Greek guys, these Gentiles, the Hebrew uh, Greek word here is Hellenes, these, these Hellenistic individuals, these non-Jewish individuals, uh, they're at the feast because they're interested in, uh, in Jewish culture. <laughs> They show up to the feast, just like somebody would show up in Spain to see the running of the bulls because they think it's interesting. So also these Greek guys show up at the feast. They just think that this is a, a culturally interesting moment. Maybe they are like worshipers of Yahweh in some way, but they would never be allowed in the inner court of the temple anyway. They'd have to watch from the outside. So they're here, they're interested in what's going on, and they're hearing that these Jewish people are saying that their king that they've been talking about for a thousand years is now here. And they want an audience too. 
And so notice these Greek guys in verse 21 come to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Now, Philip could say, you can see him. He's there on that donkey. (laughs) But that's not what they want. They want a private audience with Jesus. They're wondering if these, as outsiders, if they can be admitted into his inner circle. Uh, For you uh, Bible study geeks, are you not curious as to why we came to Philip? <laughs> why, does they t- why do they talk to Andrew as well? Like, is this just some unnecessary detail? I think this brings the, the Scriptures to life because if you think about the fact that there's 12 of these dudes who are in Jesus' entourage, all of whom are thoroughly Jewish, you've only got two guys that have Greek names, Philip and Andrew. So what happens in this particular instance? Philip, the guy from Bethsaida, which was the place closest to the purely Gentile region, like is the one that gets targeted because they're like, oh, I'm familiar with his name. Could you imagine uh, being in a Muslim-majority country, and then like you're just meeting people, and all of a sudden you meet somebody named John and another person named Sam? Like you used to be here in like Hatib or something like that, and then all of a sudden now you've got a, a John. Oh, John, okay. We might have some connection here. So he sees that there's connection. They want an end with Jesus. And Philip and Andrew are a little, like, they're not like, sure, come on. Philip goes and talks to Andrew about it. And he's like, okay, well, I guess we're going to present it to Jesus. Maybe he will entertain an audience with the Gentiles when he's literally being coronated as king, so it seems. And we don't ever hear, though, what happens. I just assume in this particular instance that the whole entourage is just standing there awkwardly because Jesus will not actually address the presence of the Greeks, or so it seems. Keep that in mind. It's important. This whole scene starts with with these Greek guys coming to Jesus, wanting a private audience with him, seemingly interested in having uh, some private time with him, and Jesus seemingly never speaks to them. What does he do? Verse 23, and Jesus answered them, that is uh, Philip and Andrew, sure, let them come talk to me. Nope. (laughs) He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. It's time. The hour has come. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's that word that we've been trying to define over and over again as the moment of of Jesus shining. Like, it's time for Him to be in the spotlight. It's time for me to take the stage. It's time for me to be put on display. It's time for people to see what I can do. Instead of talking about the Greeks, He talks about Himself. It is now time. It hasn't been before. We've been holding off on this. Here we go, guys. I'm about to be glorified. And then look at verse 24, you're like, oh, great, he's going to shine. And what does he do? He gives this rather enigmatic parable about death. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. You're like, um, all right, Jesus is going to shine now, but now he's talking about wheat being buried in the ground and producing fruit. What does that have to do with anything at all? It's a little confusing. And yet he's indicating here that the very way that he would shine is the same way that a kernel of wheat shines. How does it shine? Let me tell you how it doesn't shine. If you want a kernel of wheat to shine, you don't put it in a frame and put it up on the wall. It will not shine that way. You could put a stinking spotlight on it, and it still won't shine in the way that we're talking about. You know what you have to do with it? The grain of wheat actually has to be taken and thrust into the ground and buried, and it literally has to die. And when it dies, it will produce life and more fruit, more wheat. I was talking to my kids about this very analogy, and I, it, it's, it dawned on me, most of us don't really know the wheat analogy. Has anybody grown wheat in here before? Okay, one person. Awesome. Um, so, <laughs> just listen, I'm going I'm to modify Jesus' illustration. I'm totally with historical grammatical interpretation, but let me translate. 
Just since you don't know how wheat typically grows, it grows like seeds. Seeds like seeds grow, grow like tomato seeds, for example. They they have to be buried in the ground and then they die, and they produce more fruit. He's talking about the wheat kernel. It was a normal thing. They knew how wheat worked. Like it's got to die. It's got to it's got to go in the ground. You don't hold on to it. You don't preserve it. You, you don't highlight it. You don't frame it. You let it die. And Jesus is saying, "This is how I'm going to shine. I'm going to shine by dying. And here's what's going to happen when I die." The logic is not hard to follow. There will be life bursting forth from my death. Why is it so glorious and great and grand that Jesus is going to die on a cross? Because it produces life. He'll confirm this later. But he quickly, very quickly, turns it around to the people who are standing around him. And notice how he transfers the focus from himself to all who would follow him. He says in verse 25, whoever, now he's not talking about himself, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Well, this is strange. He was talking about himself, but now he's actually saying, if anyone wants eternal life, if anyone wants to follow me, they're going to do something similar. No, they're not going to redeem the world through their death, but they will, in a sense, die, and they will, in a sense, produce life. The Greeks are wondering, can we get in on this? And Jesus makes his first whosoever statement of this particular context and says, hey, here's the deal. Anybody, red, yellow, black, or white, Jew or Gentile, you want in on this? You're going to follow me even in dying to yourself so that eternal life would come from it. This is a far cry, friends, from what we see in the Christian triumphalist movement. The focus is on a dying Jesus, and those who would follow him are said, okay, you die too. It's... it's, it's They're told that they're going to be an offering. He's saying that they need to give up their lives here, their physical life, their political opportunities. He's going to do that, and they're going to need to do the same thing. Now, uh, we run into a little bit of a problem, friends, culturally, because um, we in the West, like like normal English speakers, don't speak in parallelism. Like it's it's just a very Eastern thing. Easterners love to do these like con- compare and contrast kind of stuff. Like this is part of their language. So this kind of stuff messes us up because when we see it, we're saying stuff like, what? I got to hate my life? Or in Matthew 10, I got to hate my mama? It's Thanksgiving. You know, like, hate? That's a strong language. It's called antithetical parallelism. The point is, two opposites just to show the extremity of what Jesus is calling for. Hey, we do uh, overstatement all the time. We exaggerate things, uh, you know, like, and we're communicating a point in that. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's not actually calling for some type of morbid self-hatred, some type of personal torture. What he's saying is that there will be this priority of God's way versus your own way. Whoever loves his life, if you treasure your own life, your mind, your emotions, your will, your body, you're going to lose it. It's going to be gone. And whoever hates his life in this world, not his life, but notice that, his life in this world, the stuff that this world can offer, if you're like, no, that is so unimportant to me. That is so at the bottom of my list because God is at the top of it. It says you will keep it for eternal life. Uh, Friends, this is what it means to follow him. If, indeed, a cross is at the center of the, the Christian religion, what it means then to follow him is, indeed, to die. To die in some sense to self. There's this beautiful passage. I'm not going to read the entire thing for you, but note in your in your notes, 1 Peter 2, verses 20 to 24. That's another place where Peter, for example, will say, the death of Jesus actually displays the kind of life that you're going to be living. 
Maybe I, I will just read it. I want you to hear it. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. To what have we been called? It says to do good and to suffer for it. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in a turn. When he, when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That's what the crucifixion is calling from you. <laughs> no longer is life about you. It is the principle of an offering. You are no longer yourself. You're giving up your life, your dream, your ambitions, your hopes, your fears for something greater. He gives the principle of offering, but he gives another practical principle, and that is the principle of ownership. Notice in verse 26, he says, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Notice that. Like, this was the kind of allegiance, by the way, that was called of any disciple in the first century. Like, if you were going to say that you were a disciple of so-and-so, let's say it wasn't Jesus, that you were a disciple of Rabbi Ben Gamaliel, uh, you would totally like, give up your way of life to do everything that that guy does. Wherever he goes, you go. You, fo- you literally follow him. That's how you learn from him. That's what a disciple means. See, we have a, this clean context for like a classroom and education. Like we show up to a very tidy educational environment and then we leave it. For them, education took place in life. You, you literally followed the guy around everywhere if you were going to be his student, if you were going to be his follower. Jesus is saying like, hey, look, if you're going to actually follow me you're going to be a servant. If you're going to serve me, you must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Do you notice how many times the word servant and serve is there? You're giving up autonomy. It's talking about you actually being under the ownership of another. The principle of ownership is when God makes the demands and we do the obeying, by the way. Again, I, I, want, I, don't, I don't know if you're dealing with this or if you know of people who are dealing with this, but there are people who are out there bossing God around saying, I need you to do this and that for me. And that is not what Jesus says it means to follow a crucified Lord. It means that you're actually a servant and you're like, God, whatever you want is what I will do. And there's beautiful benefits of this, of just being his servant, like doing whatever he wants as opposed to what you want. It says, in particular, that my Father will honor you. Honor. Think about that. Don't you like it when you're doing your social media thing and like you post your Thanksgiving picture of your turkey and it gets like 600 likes? Don't you feel honored? Or people retweet whatever wisdom flowed from your mouth hundreds of times, it's honor. (laughs) You feel like special, like you're valuable. Friends, I want you to understand something, that the honor that is offered by the Father for those who will follow Jesus is better than anything you'd ever get on Instagram. It's better than anything that any employee any business, any civic service, like whatever bestow upon you. There is no honor like that of following Jesus. The Father says, I honor those who serve Him. Which opens us up to the, the possibility that the Father will at one day honor some more than others. <laughs> if there are degrees of retribution in hell, there are also degrees of reward in heaven. I would think of it this way for an analogy. If you've ever graduated, which I assume many of you have, you know what it's like to stand in that line. And everybody who's standing in that line has passed. They get in. And yet, depending on where you grew up and how your thing went down, sorry those of you who are homeschooled, 
there's cords that will be draped around somebody's neck. There's cum laude, right? There's magna cum laude, and there's summa cum laude. So one cord, cum laude, laude, some honor. And then magna cum laude, great honor. Summa cum laude, three cords, highest honor. God is saying that you want honor from me. You're, you're in if you're serving Jesus. But the more you serve him, the more you die to yourself, the more that you live for his way as opposed to your own way, like the more honor you receive from the Father. Jesus got you in. That has nothing to do with your entrance. You're passing the test. He took it for you. You get no credit. But the honor, that is a byproduct of your obedience. So Jesus' death is glorious insofar as it produced life. It produced life. But there's another way in which his death is glorious. It also secured victory. Secured victory. Verses 27 to 36 now. Notice this. Talking about this honor, talking about dying as a seed, Jesus now interjects like a psychologically vulnerable moment. Notice how he says in verse 27, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Do you see the tension that's in Jesus? He does not see the crucifixion as some type of walk in the park. Like he is physically dreading uh, this moment. I said physically. He's physically dreading the moment. Any of you who have ever had surgery can understand that. You know that there's a good outcome on the other end, but nobody is ultra excited about being put to sleep or being operated on or being cut to pieces or having something removed or whatever it is you had done. It's a human response. I mean, there is a real aspect of terror here. And this isn't Gethsemane. He's not even in Gethsemane yet. It shows us, by the way, that this was something that would continue to recur as he would think about it. He didn't have post-traumatic stress disorder. He had pre-traumatic stress disorder. Like he's thinking ahead as to what was going to be happening. And it's bothering him. And this is not something pretty and shiny and flowery. This is gruesome to him. He is not looking forward to this in some sense And yet he says, Father, should I say save me from this hour? And he's like, no, I'm not even going to pray that. He acknowledges, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. You know what he resolves? Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. Here we are with that word glory again. All right, God, glorify your name. And you're thinking, oh, good, glorify your name. That means make Jesus look really good. Make him immediately the king of Israel so that he rules and reigns and he doesn't suffer at all and he gives rewards to everybody. And yet he's going to clarify exactly what he means by having the Father glorify his own name. Notice there's this odd moment of confirmation when a voice, looking at verse 28 here, came from heaven and says... Think about this. An audible voice from heaven says, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. That's only happened two other times. God has only spoke from heaven two other times in the life of Jesus. His baptism, transfiguration, and here in this very moment when he's talking about his death on the cross... God verifies from heaven that, yep, this is how the glory is going to take place. You have glorified my name by doing all the stuff that I've told you to do, but you will glorify it by dying as a sacrifice for those that I have chosen. Have you ever seen those moments where, like, somebody makes a statement and then all of a sudden there's like a crack of thunder and you're like, whoa, that was like divine confirmation. That's exactly how the people perceived this. Notice as you keep reading, verse 29, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now, keep in mind, 
Some people, like, just hear the sound. Some people hear that it's words. They thought it was an angel. And notice what Jesus says in verse 30. This voice has come for your sake, not mine. (laughs) Why did the voice come? Why was there the crack of thunder, so it seemed? Why did God speak in this moment? He's affirming that everything that He is saying in this moment is something I am backing up. Listen up. It is a divine exclamation point. It's not a period. It's not a semicolon. It's not a question mark. It's an exclamation point. God punctuates this with His own voice, and even if they don't fully understand what was said, they know that whatever Jesus is talking about right now is really, 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 really important. And so what does he say? Now, this is Jesus speaking, verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Now you read those first two and you're thinking, oh, this is going to be great. Jesus, right now, is about to cast out the ruler of the world. Well, at this point, even though God oversees all that happens. He's not physically ruling over the world. Right now, you know who rules over the world? Rome. (laughs) They're the ones ruling. Those who were more theologically inclined would have understood that Satan, in some sense, was kind of ruling what was going on here. You say, well, in what sense was Satan in charge? It's just Satan seems to be in charge in the absence of God exercising direct rule. Who is in charge? (laughs) When things are going to hell in a handbasket. Well, it must be Satan, the adversary. Like, he's the one that Adam, by like default, granted rule to. He conceded it to someone outside of God himself, and now this thing is under a terrible administration. And Jesus is saying, All right, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. He's saying whatever is about to happen is going to end up in judgment. There's going to be a clear line between who's in and who's out. There's going to be guilty and there's going to be not guilty. And at the same time, the ruler of this world will lose his hold on it. And you're thinking like, yes, this is the victory that we're waiting for. And then he says these ominous words in verse 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Now, uh, let let me be honest with you, friends. When I read that, I first came across it in John chapter 3. So did you. And I'm like, when I am lifted up from the earth, you know what that sounds like? It sounds like when I'm promoted. Promotions sound nice to me. Don't, Don't they to you? Don't you like it when you're lifted up? You know the old song, did you ever know that you're my hero? (laughs) And that you're the wind beneath my wings? Like you bear me up, you bring me up. My wedding, we did not sing that song, but we did uh, do uh, Josh Groban's You Raise Me Up. Isn't it so inspiring? You raise me up. You lift me up. And like you're thinking like, oh, this is awesome. Yay, Jesus. He's going to be lifted up. And when that happens, he's going to draw them into himself. This is going to be fantastic. But notice verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Whatever is going on with this lifting up is not going to be the kind of lifting up that we're thinking about. He's going to be lifted up. He's going to be exalted. He's going to be put in the spotlight, if you will, but it's going to be in a way that's way different than anything that you or I would expect. Specifically, what did he say earlier? I'm going to be glorified when I, like a seed, go down into the ground and die. Here he's clarifying, I'm not just going to go down into the ground and die. I'm actually going to be lifted up off the earth. That's when I'm going to be exalted. And how was one lifted up? They were literally nailed to a piece of wood, and it was stepped into the ground. It is a, called a double entendre. It's when you use a phrase that you know can be understood in two ways. Unfortunately, friends, I can't give you any examples. If you look up double entendre in our own culture, it's normally sexual. People will say something and they mean something else. They want you to take it both ways. 
But this double entendre is real in the book of John. Often he will say one thing, he means two things. It's one of the few instances in the Bible where this takes place, but it's crystal clear here. It says, he'll be raised up, he's going to be exalted, but how's he going to be exalted? Not by, listen to this, not by being resurrected from the dead alone, but by actually being nailed to a tree and suffering and dying. And the crowd, they get what he's saying. They pick up what he's laying down. Look at verse 34. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Do you see what they're saying? Like, they get it. We don't know everything that Jesus said. I don't know if you get this or not, but like, The Bible is an inspired account of what happened, and I think what we have is inspired summaries of what happened. It's not like this whole conversation literally took only 60 seconds and then it was over. There's more that's here. So John explains to us how Jesus explained to them how his being raised up was actually him suffering and dying. Where did Jesus get that, by the way? Have you read Isaiah 53 lately? Do you know that one? That, that promise in the Old Testament that, that the servant of the Lord would be lifted up and exalted in death? Jesus probably explains to them Isaiah 53, helping them understand that this was the means by which they would experience ransom and rescue. And they're like, whoa, 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 hold on a second. We know from the law, by that they mean the Old Testament, that the Christ remains forever. I want you to be really sympathetic, friends. If you grew up in Judaism, if you are a Jewish individual, thank the Lord we have a few people here who are who grew up Jewish and they're fun to talk to because like you you need to understand how they were reading the Old Testament. See, you read the Old Testament through a New Testament lens, they read the New Testament through an Old Testament lens. Like anything going on with Jesus, they were just thinking Old Testament. Well, two things were crystal clear in the Old Testament. One was Isaiah 53. Somebody's going to suffer and bleed and die and make everything right. But something else was also crystal clear. Somebody's going to come, kick butt, take names, and actually rule over the world forever, and nobody's ever going to touch him. Now, for you, you're like, oh, I get it. That's Jesus. It's one person. You know what they honestly thought? It must be two people. There must be this one guy that's going to be the suffering servant, and there must be another guy that's going to come in like David. And so they're, they're genuinely confused. They're like, whoa, whoa, we thought you were the king. We were all in on that. But now you're saying you're going to be the king who dies? This doesn't make sense. And Jesus is like, no, it's all one and the same. I'm the same person. You, you get how their confusion is communicating something to us. This was indeed shocking. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? How, how would he be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What kind of Son of Man is this? So, notice this, Jesus said to them, now here it is, you would think that he's going to like get into an extended dialogue about his identity, and he shuts down the conversation. He closes with a little parable, and he walks, he literally walks away. Listen to this, if it's confusing for you, don't worry, it's supposed to be. The light is among you. For a little while longer, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. Now notice the commentary. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Odd, right? Here we are talking about the suffering of the Son of Man, and now all of a sudden Jesus is just like, you're concerned about that? Let me tell you what you should be really concerned about. The light is among you. In the Jerusalem crowds, by the way, they already knew him to be the light of the world. He already said that he was like that pillar of fire that represented Yahweh in the Old Testament. And then he backed it up by healing a man born blind. This was well known. It was not secret. There was a public trial. I mean, like everybody knows that he's called himself the light of the world. He's saying, you got questions? I got answers. Here's all you need to know. 
I am the light of the world. This light who is me, I'm among you for a little while longer. You do not have an unlimited time to walk by my light. He says, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. What he's inviting them to is like, live in light of what I, as the light of the world, am telling you. It is a, I will be a crucified Lord, and you need to come and follow after me. It is a limited time offer, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness, the one who rejects the light, does not know where he's going. You're not going to know. I'm telling you everything you need to know. While you have the light, notice this, believe in the light that you may become the sons of light. Just trust me. Believe in the light. Trust me. I know this light is a little darker than it seemed, right? I know I'm going to die, but trust in the light while there's time. And then he literally gets out of there. It's an enacted parable. He's actually saying, and I'm walking away. Like if you were worried about a limited time opportunity and the guy's like trying to close the deal, he's like, I'm not going to stay here much longer. I'm not going to stay here much longer. You're like, well, you're still here. (laughs) I have experienced that at a used car lot before. Like this is, we only have this deal today. And the crazy thing is they just keep calling me back. You know what Jesus does? He says, limited time offer. And walks off. Friends, you don't mess around with this. Jesus is saying, the way I show my glory is by dying on a cross. (laughs) Either get on with it or get over it and go do your own thing. This is who I am. I'm not explaining myself any further. This is what I've come to do. My Father will be glorified by my death. And so, in his death, then, we see that victory is secured. He's saying that this judgment of the world, this casting out of evil, this bringing people into myself, you know, like, like this is all going to come about, like, through my death. I'm bringing in a new era, a new age, and you can be a part of that if you walk in the light and what I've revealed. I, um, I've mentioned social media a few times this morning, and it's on purpose. I think it's a unique time technologically. Like, we've never had the capacity before to so put ourselves on display. I mean, could you just think back to like 50 years ago? What, were you going to, like, rent a billboard and tell people about yourself? Like, the capacity that we have today for making ourselves shine is unparalleled. And we've all done it to some degree or another. What you, what you glory in, what you, what you spotlight, I'll put it that way, about yourself, it says something about you, Right? Like maybe some of you have a Twitter account, and you know what it asks you to do? It asks you to like put in, I don't know however many words, like in a couple sentences, just what you want everybody to know about you. Or if you've got some other social media thing. It's funny. It's not even social media. It's anything. You have to pick an avatar. Or you post a picture of yourself. Like it used to be. Oh, what's your name? Okay, that tells me. <laughs> I guess I need to get to know you. Now you get to pick what's prominent about you. It's a crazy thing. And yet it says something about you. That the picture that you, you post as your Facebook photo like says something about you. A, a logo says something about a company. The, the brand says something about you. Now, with that in mind... God getting to choose his own advertising campaign, him getting to create his own social media account, like his way of communicating to everyone else what he's like when he puts a cross on his profile pic, what in the world does that say about him? He's saying, this is how I shine. 
think it says that it's glorious not just in light of the cross, but in it. It's glorious not just in light of the cross, but in it. Do you realize, friends, that through the death of His Son, He is conveying something about His love and His tenderness and His willingness to enter into our suffering and our sorrow. This is good news. Notice, He's saying, all right, Gentiles, you want to know more about Me? You want a private audience with Me? Here's all you need to know. I'm going to die. And all who are willing to come to me in death will experience life eternal. This is what you need to know. I'm going to display my glory in death. Friends, I just want you to get something. What we see here of Jesus is a far cry from Joel Osteen, Tony Robbins, or Paula White. Here we have self-professed religious individuals saying, here's what God's like, and it's winning all the time, having your best life, succeeding, having fun, like enjoying the material possessions of this world, feeling gratified and fulfilled. And Jesus is saying something so different. Okay, here's how I shine. I'm going to die. Friends, the good news is that this death wasn't purposeless. It was designated for your eternal life and well-being. For God to remain just, someone needed to pay the penalty for the rebellion. Jesus did that. And we needed His righteousness so that God would be pleased with us. Like, He took the test, if you will, He gave us the score, and now we enjoy eternal life on account of that. Friends, that must be your hope. That must be your aim. Any God that you claim to serve, apart from one who would have a cross somewhere in his profile pic, is not the God of the Bible. And what are the benefits of this? Say, okay, he died. He died for what? So that you would have life. He suffered death so that you would have life. He suffered loss so that you would enjoy victory. So the first question is, what does the cross on God's profile pic say of Him? Secondly, I'd ask, what does the cross on God's profile pic say of you? Let's say for a moment that you've clicked like or that you've subscribed, that you're literally one of his followers. What does that mean for you? Well, it means that you are willing to die to this life so that you can enjoy the eternal life that he himself offers. It means that you, like that seed, are willing just to be thrown into the ground and buried so that real life can come forward. Paul uses this same analogy, by the way, in Romans chapter 6. If you've never read it, I encourage you to do so. Andy and Dana, I'm grateful for you. Thank you for following Jesus in believer's baptism, even though it was late. What I loved about both of your testimonies that were so clear is that you both said this was a coming to an end of myself. Like, you understand, friends, that baptism isn't just coming out of the water, it's also going and being plunged into it. You know what you're publicly saying, and you need to know this for any of you who are thinking about being baptized. You're saying that the old you is dead, and a new you is coming into being, one that Christ has brought from the grave. And that means a different kind of life. One good illustration of this is from none other than Jonathan Edwards. January 12th, 1722. It's hard to believe. It's almost 300 years ago. This was the preacher who brought about the first great awakening. It's who many, even secular 
uh, researchers would say is the most brilliant person to ever be produced on American soil. He wrote in his diary, I think he's only like 18 or 19 at this stage, but in his study of scriptures, he was compelled to write the following. He says, I have been before God and have given myself all that I am and have to God, so that I am not in any respect my own. Neither have I any right to this body or any of its members, no right to this tongue, these hands, these feet, no right to these senses, these eyes, these ears, this smell, or this taste. I have given myself clear away and have not retained anything as my own. Friends, that is not extraordinary Christian living. That is ordinary. It's not yours anymore. You are not your own. Can I give a friendly reminder? Like I want to be encouraging as much as I can be. But I want to be faithful, I've got to exhort every once in a while. Let me just remind you of something. Um, if you have been baptized, if you have been visibly identified with Jesus on account of your real faith in Him, you are not your own. You, you have nothing to yourself. Nothing. And I'll just make everybody really uncomfortable, but I'll just go ahead and say it anyway. Let me tell you the two areas where this would most affect you, sex and money. Because those are the two areas where people think it's just all about them. I have private control in these areas. It's off limits. And if in your sexual relationships you are not submitted unto God, if you have not died in that area, I wonder if you've truly ever followed the crucified Lord. And if in your money, your life, you're so obsessed about making the next whatever financial goal. It's like that's your ultimate obsession. Have you really followed a crucified Lord? I think this is especially helpful for people who are, who are younger because we figured out a way to like make Jesus like the enhancer of everything we really want. I was talking to a family member who was just converted recently. It was one of the coolest conversations I've had all year long. My grandmother used to call me and say, pray for her, pray for her. I'm like, I am, I am. Leave me alone. I'm praying for her. <laughs> and anyway, she, um, yeah, she just went all in uh, on her university experience and was very involved um, physically living with a guy for a prolonged period of time. And she said that she was listening to some sermons, uh, some that we had done here, some, some other places. And... Um, it just began to dawn on her that that's not actually the way, um, like that's not what it means to follow Jesus, and it bothered her. Um, and she says this, by the way, in the context of me asking her, when did God give you spiritual life? She grew up in church. She grew up going to the same testimony services that I went up to. She went to a Christian school. And she said, you know, I, I knew that God had given me spiritual life when I no longer wanted that physical relationship with my boyfriend apart from marriage. Unprimed, untested, just her open, honest thoughts. Was she perfect after that? Absolutely not. But she hated her sin and wanted to come to Jesus. And now we're having talks about baptism. Because she realizes that whatever was going on with her as a kid when she claimed to be a Christian wasn't real because she had never died to self. You're like, Justin, where are you getting all this stuff on sexual purity from John? Look, I'm not, <laughs> I have no ax to grind. I don't know of any situations going on. I'm just telling you, sex and money are the two areas where people can get the most all about me. And Jesus is saying, you got to die. If a cross is on God's profile pic and you're one of his followers, it will have implications. Lastly, what if you're thinking about subscribing? What if you're thinking about clicking like 
on this profile. What if you're here today and you're actually contemplating following this Jesus? Let me be clear. Jesus in this section redirects the likely political expectations of his followers to certain death, not certain celebrity status. I can't guarantee you, as one who represents Jesus through his word, I cannot guarantee you that your life is going to get any better. In fact, I can only guarantee that it will probably get worse. This life will get worse. By the way, just think of Thanksgiving coming up. If you could just like go with the wind and like, you know, like not actually stand up for anything at Thanksgiving, like it's a lot easier than when you say, no, that lifestyle is sinful. No, that party platform is wicked. No, you know what I'm saying? Like, it makes life hard. But the good news is, anyone can have it. <laughs> Jew or Greek. But you need to think about it. I mean, this is the way that it goes down. And People say, well, Lord, I'll abandon my will to yours, but first let me see how it balances in my checkbook, and let me see if I get some, some guarantees that, that your life plans are better than my current life plans. I don't, no, I don't have any guarantees for it. You could sit there and think about it all day long. All I know is that Jesus says, this life will be worse, but eternal life will be forever. Now, his recruiting plan is pretty interesting, right? Like, I remember being 18 and contemplating joining the Marines. 9-11 had just taken place. Patriotism was high. I'm like, I'm in. And I remember sitting in the recruiter's office, and he's like, man, this is going to be the time of your life. (laughs) This is awesome. You're going to be in shape. We're going to get you set up for college. Everybody's going to respect you. Like, he's giving me the positive pitch you know, on joining the Marines. Like, of course. That's the natural recruiting strategy, right? Like, tell them all the benefits. But what does Jesus do? He's like, hey, there's some benefits, but let me go ahead and tell you some of the stuff that you're getting into. I love the old uh, saying, um, it's free to sign up for the army, but you're still signing up for the army. It's free to follow Jesus, but you're signing up for something. He's saying, all right, you need to contemplate something. Count the cost here. Your old life is dead, but you'll get a new one. A better one. I, I, I get it that when we think about that, some people could say, well, that sounds awful like works. Are you telling me, Justin, that I've got to clean up my life before I come to Jesus? No, that is not at all what I said. All I've said is that a crucified Lord draws certain people to himself, and here's the deal. They do what they want to. Now they want to follow Jesus and his ways, and they want to shun their old life. Nobody's holding a gun to your head saying, do this so you can have eternal life. Notice that phrase. It is so clear. It's in verse 32, and when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. You know what this response is of obedience? It is one that is impelled by Jesus alone. He produces it like moth to flame and roach to light. This desire is not acquired, but inherent. It is not drummed up, but derived. God gives this to you. Philippians says it this way, it is God who works in you both to will and to do of His good pleasure. Friends, if that sounds absolutely revolting to you, to, live, to give up your best life now for your best eternity, well, you're not a follower of Jesus. But if there's any sense in which that seems compelling, that seems interesting, like you want to get in on that, I say enter in. Paul says it this way, to those who are perishing, we as proclaimers of the gospel are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. Hey, when you see this cross thing, when you think about Jesus, like having died for you, how does that smell to you? Let's just give it the sniff test for a second. Is that life-giving? If it is, friends, that is supernatural. This is crazy. And if it's off-putting, it makes total sense. I get it. 
I'm not telling you you've got to clean your life up to get in. He will give you a desire to follow him and change. So friends, if you're wanting it, turn and trust by faith, but don't wait long. I think some of you have delayed too long. I don't know at what point the door shuts, but it is not open forever. He is drawing you now. Respond now. Today. Like, look, I get it. It's a busy week. We're about to go on vacation. But I assure you that I'll hang around as long as you want if we can talk about what it looks like for you to follow Jesus. If you already have it, if you already have this wondrous attraction for the old rugged cross, let's cry out in gratitude for his amazing love. I want to pray, we'll sing, and then we'll do a closing reception of members. Father, some of us, many of us, most of us maybe in here, You have drawn, you have brought us in. (laughs) Oh, you you have included us to the degree that we're willing to die, die to ourselves and do all for you. Lord, I rejoice in that and I pray that, Lord, we would live that out all the more. Or there's so many other areas in which we just kind of hold on to self control and I ask that it would change permanently for us all who are in Jesus. And yet I know that there are some who are here today who are still on the outside and or maybe they smell it and it smells like perfume and yet they have yet to trust in Jesus. I pray that today would be the day that they would truly trust in Jesus, that they would stop rejecting His sacrifice on their behalf, that they would stop thinking that they're good enough, that they would stop living for themselves or bring about that kind of change today. I can't do it. Only you can. So through your amazing love displayed on the cross, draw even more this day. And it's in Jesus' name I pray and ask it. Amen.